Welcome to Casting Hope, a sermon podcast of Hope Presbyterian Church in Columbus, Ohio. My name is Joe Hack, lead pastor at Hope, and we are so glad you're listening in wherever you are. In this moment of social distancing, we hope that our audio and streaming resources meet you where you are at and help you stay connected to God and to His promises. All right, if you would uh, find a Bible and turn with me this morning to Psalm chapter 1, the very first Psalm, Psalm chapter 1. We are returning to our annual summer series on the Psalms, uh, and it's good to return often to the Psalms as a church because the Psalms are really the heart of the Bible. The Psalms functioned historically as the worship songbook of God's people. When God's people gathered in the Old Testament, this was their hymnal. The Psalms were their hymnal. So these songs are not so much aimed to the mind of the believer, but to the heart of the believer. In fact, the Psalms touch on every major truth of the Christian faith. It's been called a mini-Bible. But... It does this not necessarily to fill the mind, but in order to transform the heart. The Psalms have a way of dropping truths the 12 inches from your mind to your heart. Now, how do they do this? Well, first, the Psalms, they focus your heart. They focus your heart. The Psalms are meant to focus our hearts on God. We're all hungry and thirsty for God. In fact, Solomon said that, Eternity was built into our hearts, and so our hearts are restless until they find their rest in God. And we're so prone to fill our hearts with temporary fixes. And that's why we need the Psalms on a regular basis, because the Psalms focus our hearts on the centrality of God. Second thing they do is they free your heart. They free them. Every human emotion is expressed in the Psalms. Did you know that? Uh, and because this is God's songbook, this is God's authorized songbook, we're not only allowed to express every human emotion to Him, but we are commanded to do so. I mean, sometimes uh, we say to our kids, what mom and dad said isn't a suggestion. Well, God does not suggest that we express joy or sorrow or lament. God, our perfect Father, is telling us to do so. The church father, Athanasius, he says, The scriptures speak to us. The Psalms speak for us. The Psalms free your heart. And then third, the Psalms form your heart. They form your heart. Uh, Sometimes there are emotions and ideas that we don't resonate with in the Psalms. And God knows this. In fact, He knows our hearts because of sin are malformed. They're malformed. And that's why He designed a songbook and a prayer book to reform and reshape our hearts. And so the more we pray them and the more we sing them and the more we chew on them and meditate on them, the more we will start to resonate with them. My Old Testament professor, Jack Collins, he admits, and I'm quoting him, It's not natural to trust God in hardship. And yet the Psalms provide a way of doing just that. And enable the singers to trust better 
as a result of singing them. A person staring at the night sky, he goes on, might not know quite what to do with the mixed fear and wonder they find in themselves. And singing Psalm 8 will enrich their ability to respond. See, the Psalms get to the heart. And poetically, I love how they're in the middle of your Bible. Uh, Like a heart, they are in the middle. So for me, it's a tangible reminder of their centrality in my life and in the life of God's people. I don't think N.T. Wright overstates it when he says, I find it impossible to imagine a growing and maturing church or individual doing without the Psalms. So this summer, we're going to be immersing ourselves into the Psalms. But today... We're going to start right at the beginning. This is called Psalm 1, but maybe we should call it Psalm 0, because many scholars point out how it is the preface, really, to the whole book of Psalms. In order to enter into the book of Psalms, we have to pass through Psalm 1. When our family went to the Magic Kingdom, everybody had to pass through Cinderella's castle. And this was on purpose, of course, right? It sets the tone and it sets the terms for everything that is found in the magic kingdom. This is a magical place. This is a fantasy place and so on. Well, same with the Psalms. We're about to enter into a new world. And in order to read them and pray them and sing these words, in order to, as Eugene Peterson would put it, to live in the Psalms as we are supposed to, We need to walk through the magnificent doors of Psalm 1. I'll read and you can follow along. This is God's word. Blessed is a man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season. And its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So Lord, would my words and with the meditation of all of our hearts here together be pleasing and acceptable to you, our rock in our Redeemer. And Holy Spirit, would you come? We invite you to turn this into an encounter with Jesus. Your word is alive. We confess it is. Lord, would you indeed speak into our lives this morning? And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, at Hope, I like to talk a lot about the two-by-two grid in our church community. If you don't know what I'm talking about, shoot me an email and I'll explain. I'll have tons of things to send to you. But basically, it's a handy way to visualize how most things in the Christian life are not either or issues, but both and issues. Think about it. Jesus is both truly God and truly human. Scripture is both authored by humans and authored by God. The gospel, that it goes out in both word and in deed. 
both and. I could go on and on and on. But too often what we do is we turn both and realities into either or simplicities. And when we do that, we get into all kinds of problems, which is why at Hope we love the both and mindset. It's able to carry things that God hands us in his word. But sometimes God gives us a big, giant, either or. And that's Psalm 1. If Psalm 1 is the great door of a whole building, like we talked about, then when you open this door, like we just did, you're immediately presented with an either or choice. To be exact, you're you're offered two ways or two roads, if you look at verse 6. For the Lord knows the way, that word there is Derek. If you're named Derek, by the way, your name means road um, in Hebrew. And it's, there's the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. And he's, he's con- the psalmist is contrasting these two roads. So first there's road one, and we'll call it the perishing path. Because this road leads to what the very last psalm, a word of this psalm calls perishing. Which means ruin, which means frustrated plans, which means getting lost, which means grief, which means, according to verse 5, eternal destruction. And then second, there is road two. This road is the path to eternal flourishing. Verse one tells us this road is blessed. But the word blessing is kind of misleading because there's a Hebrew word for blessed. And it's not used in verse one. The word here means happy or flourishing. And these two roads are absolutely separate. As we just read in verse six. So in this case, as we encounter and sing and meditate on the entrance to the book of Psalms, we are not offered a both and. We're offered by God himself an either or choice. A choice. My family just spent some solid time in northern Michigan. And for our last week, my wife and I did a day date with each of our boys. And for our oldest, we went to a nearby forest with an incredible single track trail for mountain bikes. And we wanted to take him mountain biking on this trail. The only problem was I had this janky uh, cruiser bike designed for like the sidewalks of a lazy beach town. Um, Not a single track mountain bike, okay? Uh, My son, though, he was okay because he had a Gary Fisher with shocks and all. Uh, But I tried, I tried. And I discovered this. As long as I stayed on the designated bike trail, even though it was narrow, about just just that much wider than my tires themselves, I was okay. It was a safe trail. Why? Because it was worn down, it was smooth, it was proven, and it was well designed. And there were moments when I could have easily gone my own way. And if I had a Gary Fisher like my son, I probably would have. But I had an either or choice. Do I trust the path that was designed by the rangers and proven by thousands of other bikers? Or do I go it alone? And that's the choice that we all have right now. Do we trust the path that God has given us? Or do we go it alone? We all want to go it alone. 
especially when it comes to what we think will make us happy and fulfilled. That first word, blessed or happy or flourishing. We want to go it alone there. Here's some recent book releases on Amazon. The Art of Happiness, Authentic Happiness, Stumbling on Happiness, The Happiness Advantage, The Happiness Project, The Happiness Hypothesis, The Happiness Equation, Happiness by Design, The Happiness Factor, The How of Happiness, and my favorite, Happiness, (laughs) which is a good move if you're an author. Why don't you name your book about happiness, happiness? But what if we're all on the wrong path to happiness? That's the troubling question that Psalm 1 poses us. It is a challenge. There are two roads, not three. Two roads, and only one leads to flourishing. The other, judgment and destruction, perishing. And so I cannot think of a more significant decision laid before each of us than this one this morning. So let's get to know these two roads as they're sort of revealed to us in this psalm. We'll start with the perishing path. Verse 1 describes, by contrast, the perishing path, what verse 6 calls the path of the wicked. This is the path of the wicked because the person on this path walks in the counsel of the wicked, stands in the way of sinners, sits in the seat of scoffers. And from this verse, we notice three things. First, the perishing path is worldly. And I'm using that word worldly as the Apostle John does. A worldly life is lived without reference to God and without relationship to God. Instead, what we do is we get our cues and our anchoring from the world. From the world. The Apostle John didn't use the word world to say the world is gross and disgusting. No, John knew that Jesus made the world and called it good. But when we get our cues from the world that is fallen and broken by sin, that is a worldly mindset. And so what we see here is that the perishing path is worldly. The word counsel, as you look down, means our thinking is informed by the word, by the world. The word way, the very next line, the way of sinners, means that we make our decisions according to the world. The word way or road was a was an ancient way of describing your your walk of life, the way that you live, the way that you behave. And then the word sit down, as you, as you look in that last, in the next line, means that we get our sense of identity from the world. Now, this verse isn't telling us to start communes or to stop making friends outside of the church or the covenant community. No, we're to be in the world, we're to be on mission, uh, nor is it saying to cut ourselves off of common grace wisdom from those outside the church or the covenant community. But it is a strong challenge to have godly boundaries in your thinking, in your decision making, and in your allegiances. We are ultimately kingdoms of the kingdom of God, or citizens of the kingdom of God. And so, the perishing path is one that is worldly. And we might hear the word, these words, wicked, sinners, and scoffers, and immediately disengage because we think this is some kind of evil elite that doesn't apply. But, but it, honestly, it's more boring than that. Those words just mean men and women who say no thanks to God's grace and to God's good ways. Your pastor was once in this company. 
I was a good moral kid. The point is, I didn't have a relationship with God through Jesus. I got my cues from the world. And this is the perishing path. And it's worldly. The perishing path is gradual. This is second. Uh, walks, stands, sits. These are what verse 1 tells us. Walks, stands, sits. is a gradual transition. Old Testament scholar Derek Kidner calls this the three degrees of departure. Walking with, standing among, and then sitting down. In, in the ancient world, to sit was to teach. Nobody wakes up and decides they will depart altogether from God. Walking away from God is hardly ever a switch. It's almost always a dial. And that's what Psalm 1 is telling us. And then third, the perishing path is deceptive. On the surface, uh, this road can often look like the blessed life. Psalms often, like Psalm 35, lament how the wicked seem to prosper. The wicked seem to have the hashtag blessed life. Uh, Why? Because they are indeed prospering in one sense. Materially, circumstantially. But this is deceptive because in the end they perish, according to Psalm 1. And so we might think we're on the right path because of how blessed we feel, but that's no reliable guide, according to the Psalms. The perishing path is deceptive, and it's a dangerous deception because it ends in judgment. Now, as a preacher, I'm always trying to think of helpful and memorable illustrations of God's truth. But in this case, God gives us the illustration that we all need for the perishing path. And it's in verse 4. It's a farming illustration, an agricultural illustration, that of winnowing. When you're winnowing, you throw the wheat into the air, and the husk would blow away in the wind, and the heavy grain would fall and land on the ground. And so what God is telling us here is that the road apart from God makes us, in the end, rootless and weightless. And left to ourselves, in our best efforts, in our best judgments, we are unable to withstand God's judgment. Verse 5. So this is a good time to ask the question, which road am I on? And give a good, honest answer. Am I on the path that God has laid out? Or am I going it alone? Maybe this pandemic has been a holy disruption in your life. We all know it's been a disruption in our life, but it could be a holy disruption in your life because it's causing you to reevaluate your life. And that is good because it might indeed cause you to switch paths. Which takes us to the other path. The flourishing path. What Psalm 1 calls the way of the righteous. Now what can we say about this path? Well, two things broadly. Number one, it is a path of commitment. And number two, it is a path of confession. So let's look at both. The flourishing path is a commitment to God's word. Verse 2 tells us where true happiness is found. It's when our delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, we meditate day and night. So true happiness comes from a commitment to God's word. And this psalm encourages us. No, it doesn't really encourage us. It tells us to meditate on God's word, which is three things. Number one, it's relational. 
We delight in the Torah. That's the word there for the law. The Torah of the Lord. The Torah is a catch-all word for God's instructions. So like a parent's instruction to to a child. God's word is like having a good father giving us instruction about life. And so when we meditate on God's word, we're listening to our father in heaven. It's relational. Meditating on God's word is a relational act. It's not individual. It's not completely you and yourself. It's you and the living God. Second is habitual. I recently learned that as much as 40% of our actions every day is by habit, not choice. This is how God made us. So instead of being captive to unchallenged habits, this psalm would encourage us to cultivate the habit of meditating on God's word. Psalm 1 says to meditate day and night. That word meditate, if you go to chapter 2, I'm sorry, Psalm 2, verse 2, you'll see the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. That idea of plotting or planning is the same word used of meditating. I know that some of you are plotting a vacation or plotting some kind of uh, vacation when all of this ends. And so you're giving your attention to it. It's always on your mind. You don't think about it every minute of every day, but it's, it's on the shelf ready to be taken up. And you see things and you think of things throughout the day. And that's exactly what meditating on God's word looks like. It's the same word that's used for cows chewing their cud. We make a habit of chewing on God's word throughout the day. To roll it around in our minds and in our hearts like hard candy or like gum. Um, And I don't want to prescribe to you how to do this. But I do want you to do this. I want you to find a way to do this. Lately, what I've been doing in an attempt uh, to do this is to open God's word before I open my phone in the morning. Third, it's emotional. Notice that biblical meditation involves delight. Delight. His delight is in the law of the Lord, says verse 2. As we meditate on God's word, We ask God to engage and enlarge our hearts, not just our minds. So meditation on God's word involves the heart. It involves the emotion, which is why God has us singing these things. These are songs. And when you sing a song, it has has a way of taking a truth you already believe in your head and massaging it into your very core. And that's what we do when we meditate on God's word. And so the flourishing path is a commitment to God's word. I said it's also a confession about God's word. The flourishing path is a confession, namely, about uh, of trust. It's a confession of trust. We confess that God's word is good, even when, and especially when, it doesn't feel like it. This psalm teaches us to play the long game. Remember, it may not look like our life is prospering when we're living by the word. Verse 3. In all that he does, he prospers. It may not look that way. But as we, as we, uh, as we uh, meditate on God's word, we're confessing 
that his word will win, that his word will come to pass. It's a future-oriented hope. The prospering in verse 3 will come ultimately, even if it doesn't seem to come in this lifetime. And so we're committed to God's word. And we confess that God's word is good. So, once again, this psalm provides the illustration for this path of flourishing. This time it isn't winnowing, but it's a tree that's impossibly green and impossibly fruitful. It's impossibly green and impossibly fruitful because even though it's planted in a desert environment with no rain, it continues to grow and it continues to be green. Why? Because it's been planted next to streams of water. Verse 3. The phrase streams of water is very interesting and important because in the Hebrew, it's not river and it's not wadi. What it is, is irrigation channel. Irrigation channel. For some, for some reason, I always pictured a natural river when I read this psalm. But really what's being conveyed here is an irrigation channel. Why is that important? Because one scholar puts it this way. A river, Nahar in Hebrew, might run wild. And a wadi, Nahal, might run dry. But the streams of water, which are irrigation channels, provide a steady, directed, full supply of life-giving water. You've all seen impossibly green yards in Southern California or some other place. In Southern California, which is like a desert and gets no rain at all, there are houses with impossibly green yards. But we all know the secret. The secret is irrigation. They have in-ground sprinklers. And even today in our own neighborhood, occasionally you'll run into this impossibly green yard. And we all know if you just look a little bit closer, there's these little black sprinklers that will pop up uh, once or twice a day. These are in-ground irrigation systems. So no matter the climate, no matter the drought, it waters the yard. It makes the yard impossibly green. And that's exactly how God's word operates, according to Psalm 1. God's word is an in-ground sprinkler system. No matter your circumstances, it waters you and it makes you impossibly green. Now, how do you get on this path of flourishing? You have to be transplanted. The word planted in verse 3, the word planted there is literally transplanted to a new position. Paul says in Colossians 1.13, God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred, that word transferred is the same idea, transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So you might think you're too far gone. You might think you're a sitter with scoffers and that there's no hope for you. Well, the hope is embedded in this psalm itself. God can transplant you transfer you out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of the sun. That's how you get on the path of flourishing. You cry out. And he will transplant you. Now how do you know you're on this path of flourishing? You know you're on this path of flourishing when you're stopping relying on yourself and you start relying on Jesus. Jesus who not only prayed this psalm, who not only memorized this psalm, who not only sang this psalm, who not only meditated on this psalm, but who fulfilled this psalm, who lived this psalm, who enfleshed this psalm. He is the truly blessed man 
in verse 1. He is the one who walked not in the counsel of wicked, who, who truly stood not in the way of sinners, who truly sat not in the seat of scoffers. He alone truly, and at the core of who he was, delighted in his Father's word. He was the tree planted by streams of water. And even though he was the perfect Israelite, the embodiment of this psalm, Psalm 1 on legs, the flourishing tree of blessing is Jesus. And even though that's him, what did he do? He took on the tree of curse. For you and for me, when we were walking, standing, and sitting in the way of the wicked, He died so that you might live. He was uprooted so that you might be transplanted. How do you know you're on the path of flourishing? It's when you're stopping your trust in yourself. And every day when you meditate on the word, as it says to you, you are delighting in the word made flesh, Jesus. Because of what he has done for you. And then what happens when you're on this path of flourishing? Three things. Number one, we have access to what one pastor calls the evergreen life. We were just in northern Michigan, as I said, surrounded by evergreens. And so no matter the season, these trees stay green. Planted next to Jesus and his word, we have a never-ending source of life and encouragement. Second, we have assurance. We can have assurance that in the judgment, the Lord will know us. Look at verse 6. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous. For all who have despaired of themselves and have trusted in Jesus, the true and perfect Psalm 1, tree of life, for all of us who have done that, we can have assurance that the Lord will know us on that day of judgment. What that word know means is not just a cognitive awareness, a knowing about The word know in the Bible, as many of you know, is the deepest kind of intimacy. The Lord knows us. That is, he loves us. And then finally, we will have something to give others. Remember, a tree, as we learned in Galatians 5, with the fruit of the Spirit, a tree doesn't bear fruit for itself. A tree doesn't stay green for itself, but for others. And that is what's going on in Psalm 1. All of the Bible is missional. All of the Bible is an orientation for God's people to be on mission to the world. God saves for himself a people. Why? To go forth on his mission of blessing the nations. And that is true here too. God gives us a promise that we will be impossibly green, impossibly fruitful, So we can be awesome? No. So that we have actually something to give others. Sacrificial love. Costly love. We can lay down our lives for others because we have something to give. So friends, this morning we have a choice. You have a choice. I have a choice. Do we trust the path that God designed for us? Or do we go it alone? Or do we go it alone? May God make hope a forest of evergreens who do indeed entrust themselves to God's path, even when, especially when, 
all the evidence and empirical data from our lives pushes us the other direction. We entrust ourselves to God's path as a future hope. May we be a church that bears fruit for our neighbors, who blesses our neighbors tangibly and intentionally. And may we be a church who delights in God's word, both their Bibles and their Savior, the living word. Lord, would you indeed work in us in this way? As we embark on the Psalms, as we sing them, and as we pray them, and as we internalize them, would we walk through these doors and choose your path? And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. For more information about our church and for more resources like this, visit our website at hopechurchcolumbus.org. 